Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. On today's episode of What Fuels You, we have Leslie Feinzeig. You probably best know her as the founder and CEO of Female Founders Alliance, though she's plenty busy being a mentor for Techstars on the Startup Club Leadership Board for the WTIA, the owner of Venture Kits, a wife and a mom, and an expecting mom. Leslie is spreading the message that only 2% of venture capital goes to female founders and entrepreneurs and is changing the landscape through her efforts at FFA. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. Super fun. Um, And we have a lot to catch up on, but we're going to start with Rapid Fire. Okay. So favorite podcast. I know you listen to a lot. This American Life. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's for years and years and years. That was like the original gangster. Obsessed with it. Yeah. Okay. Best adventure activity in Costa Rica. Oh, oh man, it's I'm been a while. Yeah. But you know when you when you yes. actually live there, you it's not go. a vacation spot. Yeah. It's just home. So what would you so, recommend? Um, uh, I think I would recommend the mountains. Probably, okay. I think it's most beautiful. Okay. I would recommend not not just going to the beach and laying down and because you, you know, can do that anywhere. Cocktails. You can do that anywhere more cheaply. Yeah. Favorite meal to cook? Oh, I love baking challah. Um, it's too. therapeutic. I need, your, I need your challah recipe. I can totally give you. I'm I have having two. people for Shabbat tomorrow, so love it. Um, most inspiring business book. It's okay if you don't have. I one. don't think I have. Most inspiring one. book. Let's just you know. Broadly. I um. I guess I'll make a call out. Like my first job out of business school was with uh, Clayton Christensen, who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. He's the guy that coined the term disruptive innovation. Oh. Um. And. You know, honestly, having worked with him uh, and doing consulting with him, I've come to realize that the vast majority of people, including all of Silicon Valley and Seattle and all of the tech industry, misunderstands and misuses disruptive innovation. Um, So whatever you think of it, it's probably not that. It's actually an economic theory. Um, But it really kind of fuels the basis of how I think about uh, innovation and management. I I definitely want to get to that. Yeah, it's it's a very nerdy side of me. I want to hear about the nerdy side and I also want to learn. So we're going to get back to that. Um, what's the first thing that you did when you got American citizenship? Cried. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah, shocker. I cried. I, had, I hugged my mom. And who's the first one you called? Uh, my husband. Nice. Yeah. And what's something people would be surprised to learn about you? Most people, when they see me, because I, I look Eastern European Jewish, my grandparents were um, uh, Holocaust uh, refugees, uh, and they landed in Costa Rica. But I grew up, was born and raised in Costa Rica, and... Um, here in America, most people can't believe that I'm not from here because I also sound fairly American. And I still think in Spanish, you know, I, I live translate to English as I'm speaking. Yeah. So do you love to win or hate to lose? Probably love to win. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. I'm the same way. Yeah. If you lose, you lose. Like, it's good. It is what it is. I mean, yeah. someone else got to win. It's like ice cream and sex in the city. <laughs> you're, you're a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So speaking of Costa Rica... Take me back. So you are from there. You were born there. Yep. 
And I've met your dad. I've met your sister. And I have not met your mom. Yeah. So they take turns. They travel. (laughs) They come and visit once a year. And so is your sister your only sibling? No, there's four of us. I'm the third of four. Okay. Uh, And we're super spread apart in age. My older brother um, is 16 years older than my youngest sister. Would all four of you describe your parents in the same way or did you experience them differently? Hmm. I mean, fundamentally, like people are who they are, right? But I do think we probably experience them differently. Just the the age difference, the personality difference. One of the interesting thing about my siblings is that even though I would say, um, I'm a proud sister. I, I think that all of them, all of us, are really smart and really driven, um, but also wildly different. Mm-hmm. Um, different interests. Yes. And so, so did your parents different interests. raise you? with kind of drive being a value? I don't think so. I think it was integrity and hard work. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it was like necessarily a push to achieve, although certainly my parents have been really, really proud of everything that uh, myself or my siblings have accomplished. Mm -hmm. Are they all accomplished like you? I mean, the pedigree alone (laughs) is like, check. Um, I think that they're all incredibly accomplished. My little sister... Um, taught herself how to make gourmet uh, pastries and cakes. And now she has like thousands of followers on Instagram. And it's like super trendy in Costa Rica. They're just absolutely beautiful and delicious cakes. And she never went to school for it. She just taught herself. Now she's been to a bunch of schools. So yeah, there's different ways of measuring drive. Yeah, they've all done like different things. Did they value education? Yes. Everybody highly values education at home. And did you go to public or private school? Well, Costa Rica is a little different. So I went to uh, a private school in Costa Rica, as did they. Uh, the only difference is my siblings all went to the Jewish school mm. in Costa Rica. I went to the British school. Okay. Um, which is the first in a long line of like reasons why I don't fit in anywhere. <laughs> like, who uh, am I? Yeah. The whole lifetime, I was the only Jewish girl or one of two or three Jewish people in the entire school. Um did you have a, um, what's the right word? Not shaming, but were you, did oh. you kind of minimize your Judaism? Not actively. I wasn't aware of it, but I did experience like pretty severe firsthand anti-Semitism, like people making jokes about uh, Jews in ovens and things like that to my face because they didn't know uh, who I was and, and where I was from. Um, so, th- I mean, I, I very much did not belong, right? Like all of my friends went to catechisms uh, class. They all did their uh, first communions together, all of those things, right? Like they all celebrated Christmas. Um, yeah. And I have great friendships from school, but but I've definitely always been the odd man out. I've all, like, you know, I was the popular girl among the smart ones, the smart girl in the popular ones. Like I just never really fit yeah. in anywhere. Well, I think that in that way that you're describing it, it's almost like you fit in everywhere. I can blend. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I can blend, yeah. But because of that, it's, it's actually... It's not what it feels like on the inside. No, right? no, I but... understand that. I understand that. And um, But it's yeah. like, instead of thinking, I don't fit in anywhere, it's like, how cool is that that you're so multifaceted? That's I a better, a different way of looking at it. I understand that, I think, in my mid to late 20s. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm in a podcast called What Fuels You, and I tend to think that not quite fitting in is a huge feel. Yeah. For me and for a lot well, of people. Well, I didn't realize it until I started this podcast and um, I've had some people on and there seems to be a general theme among a lot of people who do have that as a fuel. Yeah. I, I, I'm actually like, that's my book. That's the book that I want to write. What fuels you? <laughs> not, not that specifically, yes, but yes. like how being a little bit of a misfit is, uh, is, I would say, a predictor of success later in life. Because if, if you can 
deal with not fitting in and thrive anyway, that says a lot about your yeah. grit, right? Yeah. That says a lot about what you can accomplish. Yeah, I love that. Um, and so would you overall, though, given the feelings here and there of anti-Semitism and feeling of kind of maybe not fitting in, would you describe your childhood as a positive childhood? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I met your dad and was like, how do you not have a positive <laughs> childhood with that guy as your I dad? I did. It was uh, very uh, joyous. We have a a uh, very warm, loving family. Um, we had a lot of fun. We mm-hmm. played together. Um, so you went to London School of Economics, right? I did. For undergrad. Yep. And so how did you choose that school and where else did you look? Yeah, so it, it was. I actually transferred into the London School of Economics. I. Um, so first of all, um, I never studied for the SAT. I didn't realize that I was supposed to do it. Uh, I uh, didn't ever take the SAT2s, which were a requirement back in the day, uh, which is to say by the time it was uh, college application time, I was wildly unprepared and had no idea, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know we're living in Costa Rica. Nobody goes to college. Like, Costa Ricans don't leave Costa Rica. You know, people, there's a great education system there. It's a lot more stable than other countries in Latin America. People stay. They don't, like, I'm odd that way. The fact that I left and and never came back, right? Yeah. That's really, really odd. Uncommon. Um, so all of my siblings went to university in Costa Rica. Um, my sister later, you know, they did their master's abroad, but like nobody left after high school. So it mm-hmm. just wasn't So done. how did you choose London School of Economics? Well, what happened was I applied to a bunch of schools in America and uh, to like four or five schools, and I ended up getting into a school called Brandeis. And you would definitely not be the only Jew there. Exactly. And I, I showed up. I, I I mean, gosh, you know, I was just 18, but I hated it. Like, I really, really, really disliked it. it Were you like, just too cold? <laughs> I was cold. I was away from the city. I didn't have a car. But it also felt like um, in Costa Rica, you get your partying out of your system in high school. Mm. Um, and then I went to college in the States. And, like, I didn't understand binge drinking. I didn't understand the party girl. I just didn't get it. I was like, this is so not fun, right? Yeah. Like, that, that was you. not me yeah. at all. So like, did you Ugh. like London School of Economics? Yeah. So then I was an economics major uh, at Brandeis. I applied for this, like, um, program at LSE. I went to LSE, and then they admitted me for the full-time uh, curriculum, and I, ne- I ended up staying. And I loved it there. And it was a lot more of, like, a model UN type of place where, like, there were dozens of nationalities. Uh, I ended up being a, a student body president for dorms. Like I made great friends from like France and Germany and uh, like Norway, just all over the world. Uh, and it felt it felt like it was like everybody was different. So it was OK to, to not be like yeah. in America. I was this weird Latin girl in Costa Rica. I didn't wasn't quite Latin enough. Right. Like it's just there. Yeah. It's like everybody has their own weird background story. Right. And did you, when you graduated, did you work and then go to HBS or did you go right to HBS? Yeah. So the the thing is I graduated uh, when the market crashed. Um, I graduated and then it was 2001. Uh, the market had just crashed like a few months before. Uh, I had a job lined up of all places in China doing uh, consulting. Um, you know, it was, it was very global at the time, right? Living in, uh, in, what ended up happening was I came back to Costa Rica for like an extended vacation, decided that I should really stay closer to home, started applying to jobs in America, and then 9-11. And then nobody hires. Nobody hires people without visas, mm-hmm. right? To the, I mean, right now they don't hire people without visas. So 
Uh, so things changed a lot very quickly. And I ended up stuck in Costa Rica a little bit after 9-11 uh, without really being able to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, visas are not easy to come by when you don't have a lot of work experience. Um, and so I worked with uh, some family businesses for a while, literally did odd jobs here and there. I Eventually, I got my first corporate job at Procter & Gamble. This was still in Costa Rica. So oh, still in Costa Rica. P&G opened uh, these like global services centers in three uh, corners of the world, and one of them was Costa Rica. They hired, uh, at this point, it must be a few thousand people. At the time that I joined, it was around 1,200 people. But it was very, very mindless work, right? It was uh, an SAP implementation. I was kind of a data monkey. I, uh, My salary, I'll never forget, my salary was 700 US dollars per month. Um, oh, wow. And it was so low that it was below the minimum to pay income taxes in Costa Rica. So I didn't even hit the income tax bottom bracket. This is why companies go to Costa Rica because you can get away with paying a lot less than you do yeah. here, but still get incredible people. Yeah. Um, and the recruiter in me is like, and you're building your resume. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was a long term great, you know, thing to do. For me, it was a, a long term investment in my career. I didn't realize at the, at the time, mm -hmm. but I and got so how all the PNG training a couple years. I ended up going to HBS in 2005. So a few years and then you went back to get your MBA. Did you yeah. just apply there or did you apply to other schools? <laughs> I applied to uh, HBS and to Columbia. Mm -hmm. Columbia was my safety. Oh. Yeah. Wow. That's was, a good position to be in. Well, no, I was broke. Yeah. I was broke. And um, so did they give, do they give scholarships? to... Uh, so I got a full scholarship to Harvard, yeah. Um, but applying to business school is supremely expensive. Actually, this is a great story. Can I tell you? So yes. what happened I love was, a good story. Um, I was really unhappy with the job that I was at, and I, there were just no prospects in Costa Rica for me. Like there was just no prospects, um, no real kind of interesting career paths, mm -hmm. um, and so I decided that it was time to go back to school. And I started looking into it. This time, having studied abroad, I had a little more sense of, you know, you have to do some exams and things like that. And so I found out that you're supposed to do this thing called the GMAT, um, which here in America, you can take basically any day of the week. In Costa Rica, they uh, administered the GMAT twice a year, two days, Oh, once in May, once in December. Okay. This was in November <laughs> when I figured this out. And... Um, and so basically it meant that I had a month to study for the GMAT and all or nothing, uh, or I would have to wait another year and a half to go to school because, you know, you wouldn't, May would not be Yeah, it wouldn't be able to get you in to, that fall and fall. Yeah, or certainly not, not, not the student visa. And so I studied every day for a month. I killed the GMAT, killed it. Um, and then my grandma died <laughs> that week. And I, I remember I had like... From the GMAT was December 7th. I will never forget this. Um, and I had basically 30 days to make the HBS application deadline, which was the last deadline that you could make as an international student to like apply in time to get a visa. And in those 30 days was also all the holidays. And all of my recommendation letters had to come from people who didn't know that they were supposed to write them and were going to be on vacation. It was just a mess. And then on top of that, like my grandma died. Oh, and then my parents no. got separated. I mean, it was just like everything was like just shit. Oh, can I say that? You can. Um, okay, yeah. There was just like everything was like falling apart. And we were in my grandma's um, wake, right? The, we're sitting Shiva in her house. And I'm writing my essays. 
sitting Shiva in her house. And I'm like, well, I need. So I went to my big brother. Uh, You know, there's like people bringing food. And I'm like, Lenny, I need you to. I need you to like. Ask one of them to write me a recommendation. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was all hands on deck with the freaking recommendations. But um, I need you to review my essay. And so he and I, he read the essay. I will never forget this. He reads my essay, and it was one of those like, "Why should what was we admit you?" About? I mean, there, there's a bunch of different questions. Mm-hmm. I don't remember specifically. I've written the recommendations for others, but I've never applied. But you I've never done, applied. I've done. I think it's different now. for HBS actually. Several, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's like, a lot of work for the people why that you're should asking. We admit you, right? Like, what do you want to do, or things like yeah. that? And um, what did and you? So write? I had. I, I have them somewhere. I don't remember. But what I do remember is that Lenny read it and he gave it back to me. And we're like sitting in my grandma in my dead grandmother's living room, right, surrounded by fa- grieving family. And he goes, read it out loud. And I was like, are you joking? This is like a really inappropriate like context to read this thing out loud. He's like, read it out loud. And so I stood up and I read it out loud. And in goes, front of others or just to him? Just to him. Um, And he goes... This essay is not finished until you're embarrassed to read it out loud. You are not selling yourself enough. You're competing against the best and the brightest in the world. Write it again and then come and read it out loud, and you're not done until you blush. And that's how Go I got into Harvard. Yeah. Because he pushed you outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, he was really... just like, stop being a wallflower, right? Like, wow. advocate for yourself. I know that you're a lot better than, than you're this, saying you than are. what I'm reading. Right, like you're not... You're not advocating for yourself enough. Yeah. I don't remember what was in that essay, but it made a difference. I love it. And was was that a, um, would you call Harvard Business School kind of the right, obviously the right choice? It was absolutely the right choice. But again, in the the context was at that point, my paycheck was $1,200 a month, right? And I was living in my parents' house, but I was trying to not depend on them more than just like, you know, home and food. And um it cost like five to six hundred dollars to take the GMAT. Each application individually costs like four hundred dollars. Um, there, like a lot of these things were really, really expensive, and I just I had zero savings. I was living month to month, and I had literally days left to apply. And so, so you know, I'd I'd ace the GMAT, and so I thought, you know what? I mean, it's not going to get better than this. I. I don't have time to write five applications. I right. certainly don't have money to do it. So what did you it. do? So I just applied to Harvard and applied to Columbia. Columbia felt safe because uh, I had an informational interview with an alum who said that he would write a recommendation for me. And I'd heard that those kind of alumni recommendations were um, – and he told me that – Held I, a know, lot of weight. Like at that point with like that score on the GMAT, it just felt like, like – I feel like I'm really bragging about my freaking GMAT at this point. But with the score, you know, it felt like I had choices. Mm-hmm. Um and I'd gone to LSE, and you know, I had like a good, yeah, good resume, good resume for that for a twenty-five-year-old. And so, um, after you graduated from HBS, tell me about some of the career choices that you made, because I love as a recruiter learning about kind of the white part of the paper on the resume, yeah. like choices and how they're made. Because sometimes as a recruiter, we can help determine people's careers, and that's the coolest. And um, so, what's been your best yeah. work experience? The one that you felt like you learned the most? Now, today. FFA. Yeah. And what about the some, of the other, some of the other companies? Did you feel too kind of boxed in? Because you're doing everything at yeah. FFA. So it's a few things. First off, the number one factor that determined just about every job up until uh, Julep mm-hmm. was my visa. Yeah. 
So I didn't have all the options in the world. You know, uh, every time that there's a downturn, which for most of my career post HBS, we've been uh, working our way out of a downturn. The first people to lose their options are immigrants. Yes. And so all of those early job options were basically 95% driven by that. By, you know, what is the safest thing I can do to not get kicked out of the country? Yeah. And uh, the day that I got my green card, that changed. I would say when it was really ultimately, I felt like real freedom for the first time was the combination of a green card and finishing to pay uh, my student loans. So I'd had a full scholarship at Harvard for tuition, but I still had to pay for my own you know, room, room and board. board. Yeah. yeah. And so that was just like three or four years ago. For the first time, I thought, okay, now it's up to me, mm-hmm. right? Like now this is just me. There's yeah. no, there's, you know, yeah. I didn't have kids at the time. Where in this whole thing did you meet Micah? How long have you guys <laughs> oh, been together? Oh, like seven or eight years. And um, how did you meet? At a dinner in my house. Was a it Shabbat a setup? potluck dinner? What? No, not really. It was one of those like, um, at your house? At my house. So did you yeah. make challah? <laughs> I actually made chocolate cake. Like and, regular? Um, no, no, no. Just like oh. my, my, my mom's chocolate cake recipe. And and that's how we started dating because he, you know, Micah is a, he's very fit. He's like a climber, but he's also a huge sweet tooth. I am too. And that's so, why I'm like, oh, tell me about the chocolate cake. I'll, I'll give you that recipe too. So he, um, what happened was I offered my house to host this like Shabbat potluck uh, dinner for, for like young professionals. Um, and the organization that like leads those, uh, it's Hillel, mm. right? And so you just offer your house. And I was friends with the social coordinator. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. You can have my, I can fit eight people. And just, I told him, um, you have to send me this girl because I had a guy friend who was crushing after this girl. And so I wanted to like set the two of them up. So send me the girl, whatever her name was. And then the rest of the people just send me your over thirties. Like, I don't want kids. <laughs> just send me, send me your you over How... like thirty one or thirty two. Yeah. You know the girl never showed up. So, um, but he, but Micah showed up, and I was just smitten because he was so freaking cute and like so like intelligent and just interesting. All these things. Yeah. And, and did you start dating right away? Um, no. So I was flying to Costa Rica to see my family uh, the week after that. And so what happened was I gave him the leftover chocolate cake from the from the dinner. And he took it home and then he emailed to say, thank you for the chocolate cake. It was delicious. And then I, I wrote back and I said, you should try the frosting sometime. Because <laughs> I'd made it without frosting because I didn't have time. And so we started like, I know, it's just like I'm such a flirt. Um, we started emailing back and forth while I was in Costa Rica, which was like three weeks. So it was about a month of being pen pals. I actually printed those emails and gave them to him for our wedding because it, it was, they were real kind of this is what I'm like emails. They were childhood stories. They were like really deep conversation over email. And then when I got back to Seattle, he called, he asked me out. Our first date was like, I don't know if anybody who's listening remembers what dating is like, but the first date was (laughs) Saturday night. There was no like Tuesday afternoon coffee. It was Saturday night at a really nice restaurant. And then he took me to the theater that day. He called me the very next day. Two dates later, I called a girlfriend and I was like, 
I'm pretty much marrying this guy. This is the guy I'm marrying, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to freak out about this from sometimes six to twelve months from now. I'm going to freak out, so just remind me that I told you that. And this how is soon it. after that did you get engaged? A year plus. So you got. Yeah. It took him a little longer. Out. Like I, I was like, okay, I love this guy immediately. Right. This is this is the one. Like totally, I'm in this. It took him like six to nine months <laughs> to like you know get on board. Get on board with it a little bit. He's shy and quiet. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, in my mind, I'm going to guess that I know the answer to this, but would you describe, he's obviously an introvert. What about you? Introvert or extrovert? I'm uh, ambivert. Call it, That's what I was going to yeah, guess. Yeah. Uh, I love people. I love people. You and I are very alike in that sense. I love listening to people. Uh, I love learning about them, understanding what fuels them. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, but then I really need some time alone afterwards. <laughs> Around the time that I met you was when you were launching Venture Kits. And um, take just a quick minute and tell how the whole thing came to be. So it's it actually starts with Venture Kids. Uh, I was uh, pregnant with Dora. I was at a job at a very well-funded hot startup at the time. I had a very fancy title. I, I like to say that I used to be the, the person you hire. Right, like I, I bet you guys would have loved placing well, me I, that's somewhere. When I met you, I was like, "You're right. so like, placeable." Uh, Your resume yeah, was like I mean, dreamy. But then I had, uh, I got pregnant, and uh, the thing is, I am who I am, and I, uh, I'm a, I like to work. I like to create. I like to be active. I like to make things. I like to launch things. I am not a lady of leisure. I just. I like to work and yeah. I work at one speed and I just had a sense that yeah, that the entrepreneurial bug. Yeah, and I, I just what I felt was, you know, if I'm going to be a mom and I'm going to work this much, I wanted to be for something that I care about and mm-hmm. I wanted to be for myself. And so mm-hmm. I left my job and um, proceeded to, you know, <laughs> not actually launch anything uh, for a few months. And eventually, just like testing different concepts out, eventually I launched Venture Kits, which was, I mean, it's still there, um, my first company. So Venture Kits uh, is, the vision of it was an education technology company that gamified entrepreneurial skills for little kids. I believe that the next generation of early childhood learning has to be focused on leadership rather than on technical skills. And the reason is most technical skills are going to be done by machines, honestly. Uh, And I think that the thing that for our kids' generation is really going to separate them and really going to make them shine and like set them up for success are the things that machines can't do. Mm -hmm. And that's emote, right? They, they, they They can't be human. We call them leadership skills, right? Like trial and failure and grit and creativity and creative problem solving listening Mm -hmm. not just like natural language processing but actually listening between the lines of what somebody is saying and Mm -hmm. being able to create something out of that i think that those are the skills of the future and actually the world economic forum agrees so venture kits was games that were designed to develop those skills in uh little kids ages five to five to twelve or so yeah um, and in doing so, you met a lot of entrepreneurs along the way. Yeah, in doing so. So I went out, uh, you know, I launched my company. I launched my, I bootstrapped it out of my basement. Like I the remember. first version. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That first summer, I cold called, uh, I think, three or 400 mommy bloggers all across America and asked them to, I, I like attached a picture of me and my daughter and like a venture kit. 
And I told them, you know, I'm a new mom. I came up with this concept. I would really love it if I could send one to you and you reviewed it on your blog. And I'll give you one for you to give away to your readers. I got like 30 mommy bloggers, like 10% response rate, which is really, really strong. So I thought that I was doing great, right? Like that kind of ballooned into some local press and then some national press. I thought I was doing really, really well. And then I went out in the pitching circuit. Uh, How much were you trying to raise? I didn't have a strong sense of exactly how much I needed and when, um, but I knew that I needed to start developing those relationships. Right. So you went out onto the... Yeah, I just like went onto pitching competitions and and, um, I did start meeting a lot of uh, women CEOs. Now, mind you, I had a lot of entrepreneurial experience or like startup experience before this from my days at Julep, from Big Fish Games, from mentoring at Techstars. So I was very exposed to normal CEOs, which is to say guys, right? Like I knew a lot of male CEOs. Yes. Yes. Then I just thought they were CEOs. I didn't think they were male CEOs and female CEOs. I just thought they were CEOs. Through this experience, I started realizing that, uh, that there were very few women Uh, And it just started hitting me. And I think part of it was being a mom and having limitations that are different uh, for a mom than they are. And trying to find people that you could have shared experience and conversations with and finding that there's not that many of them. There's not that many. And like uh, there were I felt like like I was in a dark room. Right. It just I didn't understand the feedback that I was getting, which, you know, what was the feedback that you were getting? I was cute. I'm not charming. I'm investable. Like I don't. I was the hot hire just a year ago. How right. am I charming now? And and charming is a compliment. I get it, but trust me, not in that context. Right. It's minimizing in that context, and I'm not offended in any of that. Right. But but it, there was a very distinct difference into how I was being perceived. How many companies did you talk to to try to get investment? Um, oof. I did not talk to VCs. I talked to a lot of uh, angels. angels, and I went out and did a few different competitions mm-hmm. um, at the time. And all of this, just uh, I just wanted somebody to turn on the lights, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if an investor told me, like, you're too early, is that true? <laughs> right. Because I'm pretty sure that he invested in someone off of PowerPoint. Right. And I have sales. So, yeah. like, that's that's not early, Right. right. Like that's not earlier than a PowerPoint. I just needed somebody to compare notes with. Right. Like what does charming mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Like. And so you met these female CEOs. I remember I went to an event with Silicon Valley Bank, this like female founders and female investors event. And they had a total of like 20 founders there. And I spoke to the VP at the time who told me that their entire email list of female founders in Seattle had uh, something like 45 women on there. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I can do better than that. Yeah. And so a couple weeks after that, I just on a, I don't know, on instinct, I sat down on my computer. I was on Facebook and I opened this Facebook group. It's like private Facebook group. And I started adding all the female CEOs that Mm -hmm. I knew. And what did you call it? Uh, At the time, it was just Seattle Female Founders. Mm -hmm. Uh, It kind of iterated over time and eventually became the Female Founders Alliance. Mm -hmm. Um, We were 25 women that first weekend. Um... People and started adding their friends. I was doing a little bit of light diligence to just to check that the yeah. companies Who were similar. It? Yeah. And because I think having done both small business through my family um, and also having tried to launch a, a, a scaling business, 
they're different. Yeah. The the steps that you go through are different. There are some things that are the same, right? Like you need a bank account and you need right. like accountants and things like that. But like the tactics are different. Raising capital is different. There's a it's a different game yes. entirely. And what I found was that the support networks that were available to me would tend to not appreciate that difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so either the support networks were for women entrepreneurs at large, right, for like any female entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, in which case the majority, the vast majority of the women in those groups had no idea what it, what, what this VC thing was, mm-hmm. right, because most of them were out starting whatever it interior is. design, well, yeah. whatever, right, like they're, oh, like a, um, a coffee shop, things like mm-hmm. that. Or... Um, there were the very, very, very relevant networking places uh, like that 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 event with Silicon Valley Bank, but you were surrounded by investors, and you can't really ask the. <laughs> you don't want to look too vulnerable. No, you can't. Yeah. You can't let out the ugly. You're being right. evaluated at all times. Like if, so there was nothing in between, and I really I wanted this group to become part of that. So long story short, we. A few of us started meeting offline. We did this like pitching event. I wanted to turn the tables a little bit and say, you know what, instead of having the people in power, quote unquote, right, like the investors or like the influentials uh, be the ones who pit us against each other and put us in pitching competitions, I'm going to I'm going to do like a shared resources. Yeah, I'm just like grassroots (laughs) I'm going to do a female founders first. Mm -hmm. We are going to organize our own pitching competition by our rules and the investors will be lucky if they get an invitation. Where is it today and yeah, where are you so going to take it? It started just as this online group. It took a long time to figure out what it was uh, because the minute that we started to get some attention and people started to talk about us, a lot of women started to ask to join it. I slapped an application form online. We've had hundreds if not thousands of applicants throughout the the past year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had a great year. I mean, this past year you've this gotten... This 2018. So incredible the, press. The 40 under 40. Yeah. I mean, great recognition. Well-deserved. Thank the you. The GeekWire recognition. We don't need to get into the nitty-gritty of exactly where you are today or tomorrow, but like yeah. five years from now, where do you see it? So there's two things that I want to do. One is to connect every female founder in the world uh, in a in a community that is founders first, uh, where they can really compare notes and not be evaluated as they are a part of it. Uh, we don't have a growth plan. We don't spend on marketing, but female founders come to us because it's a place where you can just connect with other founders and 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 do it safely. Mm-hmm. And what's the revenue model? Uh, so right now we're uh, funded by. Uh, sponsors like yourself, actually, you were you were the so Fuel Talent was our very first sponsor, and I kept that check, uh, and it's in my desk because it's incredibly meaningful to get that support from a friend. So thank you yes. for that. Again. Oh, you're welcome. Of course. It, it but really so, made a and difference. then what about the um, the female founders? Are they do they pay? To they the... pay a little bit. They pay uh, they pay like a fifty dollar application fee. We might turn that into a yearly fee. We give scholarships if they're really broke and can't do it. The majority of our newer members are members who just incorporated their companies. They're not in a position where they can spend a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to keep it as low as possible. And then we do events. We get ticket revenue from that. Yeah, your events so. have been incredibly inspiring. You know, obviously, it's easy to measure the metrics of growth based on how many members you have. Mm-hmm. But are you also measuring the results of the pitching Yeah, and the results of the investments and where they're going? Or yeah. do you not have enough data to do that yet? 
We don't have enough data to do that yet. Uh, and uh, frankly, we are not the only ones in this space, which is a really great thing. And I don't think that there's enough of us in the space. Um, it might feel based on the media that we're getting that we're huge, but we're tiny. Um, so th there's two things. On one end, there is the desire to create a community that connects every female founder in a safe environment. On the other is the opportunity to go deeper with a select few of those. Because the problem with the community is we can't be everything to everyone, even though they want us to, particularly when we don't charge for anything. Mm -hmm. um, that's why this year we started our accelerator, Ready, Set, Raise. So we're going to do it again in 2019. Want to do it again at least once a year going forward. And that provides us the opportunity to really go deep. And I want every single company that comes through Ready, Set, Race to become a unicorn. And I know that the odds are that they won't, but a few of them can, and a lot of them can get great exits. So I'm very proud of, I mean, all, I, I would say that all of this recognition that we've gotten this year, particularly the national recognition, um, you know, we've been, we've been in Forbes, we, Forbes, we've been in Fast Company, we've been in the Wall Street Journal. All of that is because of the accelerator, not because of the community, because the accelerator... Um, reached women all over the country mm -hmm. uh and you know we had a class of eight companies go through it mm -hmm. from six i loved cities. i loved meeting seven um, different cities meeting them and uh yeah. they got a lot they're out outstanding. of it they're yeah. outstanding they're all out there one of them already raised their round the rest are you know getting through the pitch that they speak. did it yeah. wow that's great and what this is about is uh, a better representation of the top echelons of power. And, you know, right now only 4% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. Um, there are so few Latino CEOs that they don't even, they don't even count them. So 4% women, 4% African-American. We don't even know how many Latinos. And I just don't think that in my lifetime or in my daughter's lifetime, we're going to get promoted up to 50-50. We're just not. That change has to be at the top, mm -hmm. just as much as the bottom. So well, my contribution—it's incredible—is to is to place them up there. So Leslie, I know having worked at large companies and small companies, and now you've been an entrepreneur. Um, what attributes would you say you're most drawn to in employees now that you're hiring for a startup? Yeah, so I think that these days I pay a lot more attention to the person's level of maturity and their ability to be self driven, self-motivated, uh, have attention to detail, somebody that you can just count on. Mm -hmm. right? And when, how can you interview for that? Uh, not well. Like, tell me so that <laughs> I can retire. Well. I mean, one of the things that makes me really paranoid is uh, I, uh, when I was a corporate, I, I remember I had so much time to recruit. Like if I needed to grow my team, it was part of my quarterly goals. And like I had hours and hours to just interview people. And I had like a whole HR team dedicated to bring me candidates. Right now I do everything myself. I'm like, I'm not being thorough. Uh, so now what I do is contract to hire, mm -hmm. uh, which means that I'll interview, I'll check your references, I'll have an advisor or a mentor or somebody uh, interview you as well. And then we'll do we'll date for three months. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like a working interview. Yeah, I yeah. definitely do encourage that. It it limits your pool. It does limit my pool. It, it very much limits your pool, especially in this economy. Yeah, but if you can date before getting married, uh, yeah, even better. Just hire. I've been able to do it interview. so far, a hundred percent. That's awesome. Um, I've also I haven't converted anybody to a full time employee. They've um, all been. T are they ten ninety nine employees? Yeah, yeah. That's um, great. 
So I know that that's kind of in the horizon. So we're kind of moving in that direction in 2019. We'll mm-hmm. have, I really want to bring people in. But I think the thing at my stage is uh, you are going to get equity. And equity is 100% of what I have, right? Mm-hmm. Like what that's I create, what you can That's what you can offer. Yeah. Uh, and it's that I've never worked harder for anything in my life. And so it really feels like it's dear. Yeah. And, and it, not in the way that venture kids, I feel like when I was hiring for venture kids, um, equity felt a little cheaper back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt easy. Now I feel like we really built a big, big brand. And like mm-hmm. my equity is, it feels a lot more valuable now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I tend to attract a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, which is great, uh, but I need to make sure that you're here with me to build this, right? Yeah. Not to build your brand, but to build this brand together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been a little bit of a challenge uh, mm-hmm. for us. But oh, what yeah. would you say your leadership style is? Very what you see is what you get. Uh, I am a passionate, emotional person. I wear my heart on my sleeve. Uh, so probably uh, you get um, you get all of me. And I think that on the one hand, I care very deeply about integrity. I care very deeply about treating people right, about being a good person, about being kind and doing right and having good intentions, but also good execution and not allowing bad behavior. Um, So that is probably the positive. I also really want people to grow uh, and be happy and be fulfilled Mm -hmm. uh, and have fun. Mm -hmm. So all of those things are great. Um, On the flip side, I think that it can be... Like I can be hard to read uh, because sometimes I just need my space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's important for uh, the people who report directly into me to have confidence in themselves and to be leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can know that I will always have their back. I'm really kind of into uh, building loyalty and building strong relationships. Right. Um, but to some extent, they have to own they have to own their own path and they have to own their own career, which is a little bit, you know, I don't have time to do your weekly review and like, I don't have time to give your goals. And, you know, I want to be able to trust that you are going to have vision direction, that it's going to be in brand, that it's going to be for the bigger purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, And then you're a hundred percent empowered to go and do it. Right. I, I hate, I hate being micromanaged and I hate micromanaging people. I just think it's a waste of time. I completely agree. Okay, moving to your personal life just a little bit. I'm just curious because every time I talk to you, you are working. <laughs> you're working a lot right now, girl. Yeah. And you're about to have a, an, another addition to your family, which little is very girl. exciting. Little girl number two. Yeah, and yeah. Dora is like so feisty. I hope you get, <laughs> hope you get a chill little one. She's the cutest. God maybe maybe you'll get a Micah. Uh-huh. Dora's a little mini-me. Yeah, right? Dora's me. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe you'll get a little Micah. What do you do to just kind of decompress? Dora. But what about you? Just Leslie. Yeah, I'm not really great at that right now. I'm yeah. not. I used to be a lot better at it. Uh, right now, it's work and Dora and Micah. I could not do this without uh, my husband. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, so shout out to all the amazing partners out there because it makes such a difference. Yeah. I'm not great at uh, taking time for myself right now. But I think that life is about seasons. I really do. Yeah. I will read. I'll listen to podcasts. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll get manicures and pedicures, things like that. Nice. Um, I'm not well, exercising I do... a ton right now because I'm 
you know, that's right. Growing and not fitting into most of my exercise clothes. That's right. I think that it's important. How do you keep yourself organized? So I'm not great at it. So let's not pretend. <laughs> but um, but I am capable of. I've always been capable of going fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a superpower. So I can I can hash out a deck in like three hours. Uh, currently, I would say there's three things that are, that are, that really make a difference for me. One is I hired a service that does my scheduling. Mm -hmm. So I just save myself a ton of time. I get asked a lot to meet people for like Mm -hmm. mentoring or for coffees or for whatever. I save myself a lot of time on the back and forths. And all of those like menial tasks, Mm -hmm. uh, I just give to her. Uh, So save yourself time. Uh, The second is uh, saying no. I'm normally really horrible at it, but I, I feel like with FFA... I have become religious about forcing myself to protect your calendar. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't do events. I, you know, I I know that there's there's others who go to everything, and they think that that's an important part. I just think that there are seasons in life, and right now, in the season of life that I am living in, happy hour every week is not a priority. Yeah, Yeah, I say no to that also. I say no to almost everything. And the third is uh, I become a pumpkin at 5 o'clock every day from 5 to 7 or 5 to 8. And there's an incredible power. It's like such a forcing function when you're sitting in front of the computer and you know that you have to leave the office at 4.30 or 5.30, depending on who's doing daycare pickup, uh, and and be a mom uh, because you have to end whatever you're doing right there and then. Yeah. Uh, and Seattle traffic makes that that leaving time earlier and earlier every day. So, yeah. um, and do you yeah. have do you have any sort of quote or motto that you live by, or that you think of often? One thing that I try to remind myself is to think bigger, because uh, I think mm-hmm. that I can be very. When you get too mired in the details, you lose track of the potential, the big and, picture of what you're yeah, trying like to do. Yeah, like for 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 the first time in my life uh, with FFA. There is a non-zero possibility that I will I will actually change the world in a big way, in a really big way. Yeah, uh, and I I try to remind myself of that. Yeah, that's awesome. And the final question <laughs> is, what fuels you? Family, probably. Family. Uh, having a baby girl and being about to have another um, gave me a deadline, and the deadline is Dora's college graduation. Um, is this where you cry? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I've said this enough times that I can kind of just get through it. Um, but the when Dora was born and I was out pitching and out, you know, I had like my first legit startup industry me too moment. Like it was just like such a shitty experience when on the flip side I thought I was doing something so positive and so cool and so like energizing uh and I just I just thought like I don't want my daughter to ever have to face this stuff uh and that that just felt like you know I don't know if this happens to everybody who becomes a mom or even a parent actually but like everything touches you more deeply because it's not just about you anymore. You know, something that I care a lot more about than just myself. Yeah. That's why I think that the world should be run by parents. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, I think so. Amen. Thank you so, so much for joining. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to continuing to track you and follow you and sponsor you. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Thanks again. Yay. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.